Hello and welcome back to the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Neufeld. Today is a new topic for us here on the Canadian Money Roadmap. We're going to do a book review of Nick Majuli's latest book, Just Keep Buying. Jordan, we're readers now. Yeah, we're readers. This is, this is a good one, though. I, I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's it's a good book. Yeah, Jordan and I both really enjoy reading, especially when it comes to personal finance books and things like that. I know lots of you as listeners do as well, especially those of you who have filled out our survey. So this is our first episode in response to some of the answers that we got from the survey. If you haven't had a chance to fill it out yet, there's going to be a link in the show notes here until the end of June. So if you're listening to this afterwards, sorry, but uh, if you fill out that survey, you'll have a chance to win a copy of one of our other favorite books. Maybe we'll do a review of that one too, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. But today we are going to talk about Just Keep Buying, a book by a guy named Nick Majuli. He's based out of New York and I think he's what the chief operating officer for Ritholtz Wealth Management. I think that's his title. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So he's in a similar role to what we do, maybe not as client facing as much, but in the financial planning space anyways. So this book is, it's for you as investors. So it's not necessarily for financial professionals. It is targeted to be accessible for anyone to help them much along the lines of what we want to do here on the podcast of helping people invest smarter, reduce taxes and retire with confidence. So a lot of this, maybe call it confirmation bias, but a lot of the things that we talk about on the podcast were brought up in the book. Would you agree with that, Jordan? Yeah, for sure. The, you know, the book, was broken into a couple parts. The first half is kind of about saving. The second half is more about investing. And, you know, I thought Nick does a good job of using anecdotal stories and, and some some flavor in there, along with a lot of research and backed up statistics and graphs and charts that isn't overwhelming by any means in terms of technicalities, but enough to prove his points and, and uh, go beyond just, you know, stories and points. Yeah. Jordan, you haven't seen my, my list of favorites here, but I really liked the data side of things, but also the approachable tone that it's written in. There's lots of those historical stories and just lightheartedness where he talks about his own life uh, and things like that. Sometimes it's nice to have a good idea, but until you have the data to back it up, it's it is just an idea. And so this book was great for that. So it covers off a lot of the principles that we've often shared with people but includes a lot more academic research to back it up. So that was, that was he tells cool. that line yeah. really well. That being said, sometimes there might be a little bit too much esoteric data. I found myself skimming a few sections and, and which is just fine because he has really good summaries at the end of chapters and at the end of the book too, if you kind of get lost in the, in, in the weeds a little bit. One thing that I will mention off the top, of course, this is an American book. And so it is targeted a little bit more to an American audience. There's a section or two for American specific retirement accounts that just won't be relevant to you as a Canadian listener. Here on the podcast, we wanted to provide a Canadian's standpoint or view on the financial system because there is so much American content out there. So this is maybe counter to that a little bit, but there is enough in the book that's behavior focused and things that transcends geography in, in a way. So I think it's a really great book to recommend and I feel really comfortable doing that right off the top here. Okay, so let's hop into maybe some of your key takeaways with this book. So let's start in that first section about saving perhaps, Jordan. I guess the primary key takeaway that I took away from the saving section is that when you're starting out in your investment career, I guess, or, or journey, 
saving is much more important than your investment choices. And we can think about that, I guess, from a numerical standpoint. So if you're saving, let's say, $1,000 a year, a 10% return on that is $100. You know, you think about it, you could probably spend $100 going out for supper these days, or there'd be ways that you might be able to... Filling up your car with gas. Filling up your car with gas. There's ways that you could save that. So the point is that your investment returns, whether it's 1% or 10%, isn't as important as your savings rate. Now that flips, using an extreme example, if your portfolio is $10 million, a 10% return is a million dollars a year. That's tough to save a million dollars a year for, for most people. And so... At that point, your investment rate of return is much more important than your savings rate. But we can think of it a bit of a, of a continuum. And so someone who's starting out, try and think more about your savings rate and how much you can save, because that's going to have more of a meaningful impact than your investment returns, especially at the beginning. And as that starts to cross over where your savings rate is maybe equal-ish to your investment rate of return, those things might start to shift where you got to start thinking about more more investments as opposed to, to savings. Right. Yeah. The minutia kind of creeps in a little bit later on. So at the beginning, when someone's first starting out, are you going to pick the best fund or the cheapest ETF or 100% stocks or an 80-20 or maybe you're a 60-40 stocks and bonds? Like it doesn't really matter. And he's kind of making that point. Like at some level, it I guess it might. And it always does matter to some extent. You want to make sure that you're invested appropriately. But, but is it the best use of your time? Exactly. I guess. Yeah, um, exactly. And efforts in terms of stressing about earning 1% on your, you know, 1% better return on your investment portfolio, again, using a $1,000 example, is such a small amount that, you know, thinking about your spending and savings rate is, is going to be more meaningful at that point. Can we talk about the phrasing here of savings? Sometimes people get it confused when we think of a savings account. That's just parking cash and sitting it on the sideline. When we talk about savings, we're referring to taking employment income or whatever income that you have and using that to put away for something else as opposed to spending it. And so it's buying income producing assets. That's the language that uh, Nick uses in the book here. Income producing assets, so stocks, bonds, real estate, things like that. These are investments. So it is investing, but the savings rate is just how much you're transferring from Cash in the bank to buying assets. Is that a fair explanation? That's a great point, yeah. One thing that I really liked from this section as well was the splurge rule. So talking about ways to spend without feeling guilty, because especially in the finance world, you see a lot of people or case studies on YouTube or the people that are retiring early. They're 30 years old and they retired with $10 million. Like, what in the world? Like, how does... How is this kind of possible? And there's people out there that live off rice and beans forever, hoping to have a huge bank account and investment portfolio and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, sometimes you got to spend some money. So if you see all these things out there, like, oh, you got to can't buy the Starbucks latte or you can't do anything like that. How do you ever actually feel good about spending money on nice things or high quality things or anything like that? He has a, a splurge rule that he puts in here. So I'm, I'm going to quote here from the book. And Nick says, if you've ever debated whether you could afford something, even when you had sufficient funds, the problem isn't you, but the framework that you're using to think about your spending. And so he says, anytime I want to splurge on something, I have to take the same amount of money and invest it as well. So he calls this the 2x splurge rule. Have you ever done something like this, Trent? I haven't, to be honest. I haven't uh, either. It's an interesting concept and one that says, okay, if I'm going to spend 
$100 on maybe going out is a splurge thing for me. I also need to save another $100 that I'm going to invest. And I think it's an interesting way to maybe justify, you know, some of those splurges, but also still thinking about longer term investing and, and some of those longer term goals that you have. So it's taking care of your present self a little bit and also taking care of your future self. Totally. Yeah. I have a client who, who might be listening here. And so if this sounds like you, it probably is. But their rule for splurging is the 24-hour rule. So anything over a certain threshold, if you wait 24 hours and you still want to buy it, then you go buy it. I like the the 2x rule here because it kind of kills two birds with the same stone. So if you're saving twice as much, you have to assume it's going to take you twice as long to do it. So there is a little bit of the a cooling off period between, oh, this is awesome, I got to get it, and and also spending a little bit or saving a bit extra for yourself as well. So I kind of like the rule. Yeah, it was a good one. One of the other points that I liked about the saving section is Nick does a good job of acknowledging that uh, saving everything, you know, living on rice and beans maybe isn't necessarily the goal, but also the opposite maybe isn't the goal either. And so he talks about saving what you can, you you know, people have probably heard save 10%, save 20%. Well, what does that mean? Is that even possible? You know, life happens, you go through different phases with kids and house and income and all that. And so he really talks about save what you can and understand it will fluctuate at different times. You know, he says, when we have the ability to save more, we should save more. And we don't, we should save less. We shouldn't use static, unchanging rules because our finances are rarely static and unchanging. And I know that's been certainly our experience in our household. And I'm sure almost everyone can relate to that. For sure. This relates to another book that maybe we'll review in the future. That's a Canadian specific one called The Rule of 30. And they they try to quantify this concept in that book, there's some pros and cons and some things that go along with this. My problem in my experience working with clients is that saving more when you can is like pulling teeth a little bit because that's where something like lifestyle creep comes in. And we're going to talk about that. In, there uh, needs to be a level of discipline for sure. Yeah. But maybe it's more on the other side, you know, give yourself some grace, I guess, in those periods where you're not making as much or something has happened and you need to take a break from your contributions you got three kids in diapers yeah exactly like it's it's uh, you can't say it's going to be okay for sure but you know look at your plan review your plan and give yourself some some freedom maybe to uh, to pause once in a while sure and so maybe along with that going back to the lifestyle creep thing so that's when you make more money you just start spending more money so he gives them a little bit of a rule of thumb there as well backed up with some data that if you get a raise if you get a bonus Spend half of it. Put the other half into giving it to charity or investing for your future self or something like that. Do something good with half of it. But you can you can spend that. It's okay. <laughs> like it's it's okay to have some some lifestyle creep over time. You know, you've worked hard for what you've what you've earned, and uh, it's okay to spend that money on on your family, on yourself, and and relaxing, whatever the case may be. Okay, Jordan, let's jump ahead to the investing section here, which is the bulk of what most people are thinking about when it comes to just keep buying or that that concept. So some of the things that he really focuses on here is volatility and why we shouldn't necessarily fear market volatility. Yeah, I think, you know, go back to, I think it was just the last podcast we did actually on on bear markets and we've talked about dips and crashes and how often that happens. It happens more often than you think. Volatility, you know, you can't you can't really fear it because we can't avoid it. Volatility in terms of, you know, seeing your your portfolio decline is probably 
how it how we see volatility maybe how it feels to us but yeah we can't we can't fear it there that risk or the risk of it going up and down is kind of the price of admission if you want to be invested in and certainly risk assets like equities or, or stocks yeah i'm gonna quote nick here he talks about risk is the price of admission he says avoiding the bumps in the in the markets can be beneficial of course right like if you can miss all the all the bad stuff of course it's beneficial though knowing when they will occur is impossible Unfortunately, there is no magic genie. But what do we have instead? We have the ability to diversify. We can diversify what assets we own. We can diversify when we own them. Buying a diverse set of income-producing assets over time is one of the best ways to combat volatility when it rears its ugly head. This tracks with what we've been saying, Drew. Yeah, for, for sure. It's, you know, maybe we're sounding like a broken record a little bit. It comes back to the title, you know, just keep buying. He's really, I think, his big advocate that he's really trying to get through in the book is that we can't time the market. We don't know when those bad days will happen. Something we like to quote all the time, right, is, you know, you missed the best 10 days and your returns got in half over a period of time. And, and anyways, the numbers don't really matter, but we just don't know when those days are going to happen. So, of course, like you said, if we avoid those bumps, if we avoid those bad days, that would be great. We just don't know when they're going to happen. And they often happen really close to the, the best days often happen close to the worst days. And so, yeah, if someone can figure out how to get in and out and know when those are going to happen, of course, that'd be great. But we can't predict the future, right? And as I always say, you got to be careful about the people that claim they can. Yes. Yep. It sounds too good to be true. It probably is. Charlie Munger, he might not be a name that all of you would recognize, but those who do probably really respect him. He is Warren Buffett's longtime investing partner, and he's what, 98 or something like yeah. that? He is going strong. He has been investing for longer than most of you have been alive and probably twice as long in many cases. He is at the point where the filter is gone. He has a lot of really strong opinions on things. And anyways, Nick takes one of his quotes here. He says, if you're not willing to react with equanimity, that's, I had to look that one up. I hope I even pronounced it right, but that's, it's calmness and composure. So if you're not willing to react with calmness and composure to a market decline of 50%, two or three times a century, you are not fit to be a common shareholder and you deserve the mediocre results you're going to get. Ouch. Yeah. <laughs> says it like it is. Yeah, it says it like it is. So Nick says with much more grace and it's not long-winded, but data to back it up and things like that. But it's, you, you got to participate and participation comes with a few nicks and, and scratches along the way. One thing that I liked from this investing section was making reference to how do we invest through a bumpy market. So when things are down, kind of like they are right now, he does a little exercise called reframing the upside. Uh, do you remember how this how this one played out? Yeah, it was interesting. So he talks about how, okay, if if the market is down, let's use let's use numbers here. So the market is down by 33%. You know, he poses the question, how long do you think it will take the market to recover from its 33% loss? Now, a 30, 33% loss requires a 50% gain to get back to its high. Let, let's stop there for a second. Yeah. The, the percentage math is a little bit confusing sometimes. You think, if I'm down 33%, don't I need 33% again? To, right. No, you don't. Let, let's go to the extremes here, right? So if your investment gets cut in half, so you had $100, now it's down to 50 For you to get back up to 100 your investment needs to double now. Right. So if you drop by 50, you need 100 percent on the way up. 
to get back to where you were. Right. So this is the yeah. pesky percentage math. We could probably do a whole podcast on percentage math here. Um, For sure. Unfortunately. Yeah. So it looks uh, better in spreadsheets. Or yeah, something. exactly. We yeah. love spreadsheets. Yeah. So let's uh, hop back in here. So how long will it take to recover from a 33% loss when you need a 50% gain on the other side? Yeah. So I guess that's where, you know, based on your thoughts of the market moving forward or, or whoever you're listening to for that, if you think it'll take a couple of years to get back to all time highs, then your expected annual return for those two years would be 22% if you invested money at that point, which is a fantastic <laughs> that's, return. It's awesome. It's about pretty close to four times what you would reasonably expect Absolutely. on a long-term average, right? So of course, you're not going to time that bottom exactly right, but that, that doesn't really matter. That The point kind of remains that if you if you are positive, I guess, on, on the long-term outlook on, on the market and, and typically long-term historical returns have been in your favor in that regard. Understanding that buying buying low in that sense can reframe that upside to to show maybe those returns that you're going to get over the next shorter time on those dollars invested when things are down. For sure. So yes, if you invest when things are down, it might go down again, but that's true every day, right? Absolutely. If the market's gone straight up for 10 years, it could still go down tomorrow, right? So that risk is never gone. But what you do have is the benefit of a discount today. So when things are down 33% and hopefully eventually they get up to a 30 or a 50% gain to get back to all time highs, even if it takes five years, then your expected annual return on that money invested at the, at the bottom would be 8% a year. That's awesome. Still pretty good. Yep. Let's move on from this investing section here. Of course, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. That's why it's a book. Yeah. <laughs> Go buy the book yeah. and read it. Oh, hopefully there's there's enough here that's kind of piquing your interest. If you're looking to buy the book, before I forget, yeah, you can get it on Kindle. We read it, a digital copy here, but it'll be available in your local bookstore too. If you want to go support someone local, you can buy a physical copy there. I don't have affiliate links. I don't have any way of charging you to sell you a book or anything like that. This is just a, a good book to have on your shelf. So let's go into this last section for your favorite takeaways here, Jordan. Is money everything? Well, time in a lot of ways is actually greater than money and it's a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I really like, so his last two chapters acknowledged this kind of this point, And I really appreciated this about the book. I thought he, you know, back to what we talked about earlier, he really does a good job of walking that line between creating, you know, optimizing your wealth and making it efficient, but also understanding that maybe there's a point where, you know, growing the pile bigger isn't necessarily always the goal. And so I think he, he does a good job of that. And and like you said, he talks about his, his time greater than money. And, and I, I think at certain times, yes. And at certain times, no, potentially. And, and, and maybe it's a bit of a, a privileged position to, to think about that for, for a lot of people. That's maybe not, not the case, but you can't get more time. And I think as time, as life goes on, you know, that's the one asset that, that just dwindles and there's a finite amount of it. So yeah, thinking about how you use your time and, and spend, spend your energy is, is important. It's along with that too. He talks about the idea that even if you've done really well, you've optimized everything, you've saved, you've had a great income for your whole working life, you've had no financial calamities of any sorts, you're still never going to feel rich. Yeah, this was doesn't matter, and it, and this was backed up by data. So he had a had a study that broke down individuals by their net worth, and all across the board, except for the very lowest percentiles of net worth people felt that relative to others, they were poor. So even at the, you know, the hundred percentiles or the 99 percentiles of, of net worth, 
felt like they were 80% or 75%. And that's true though, all the way down, even the 50% felt like they're the 40th or 30th and basically all the way down until you get kind of in the, the one to 10% of net worth feel like they're richer than they are, which is a, it's that's an interesting an int- conclusion. There's something else there. I'm sure. We Absolutely. <laughs> but you know, the point is whatever your net worth is today or whatever you have invested today, you probably feel if you're like most people, I guess you probably feel like others are richer than you. And it's backed up that that doesn't change as that gets better and your net worth gets, gets larger. You still feel that way. So again, he's kind of making the point that is money everything because you're always going to feel like you're behind the game or behind others in that regard. And in some ways you are though, let's do a counterpoint here maybe, right? And unless we've got Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos on the other side of this podcast, which I doubt we do. There are people that are always going to be richer than you. So what's the point? Like, what's what's the goal? You know, is the goal to be the the richest guy on the block? Right. I sure hope not. You know, so reframing that focus for your money because you'll never feel rich and you're never going to be the richest guy either. So yeah, it's always easier to point at someone else doing better and feel bad about yourself and whatever. But being rich is a relative concept. Absolutely. And and being rich is, is something that kind of just makes me cringe a little bit. But just let's talk about absolute dollars here. If you have a net worth, this is according to the stats that we're pulling from the book here. If you have a net worth over, what is it? $4,210, you are wealthier than half of the world. Yeah. How does that feel? Uh, yeah. It, it's really, it's quite staggering when you think about it. Taking it even further, the the median net worth in the US is 93000 so if you have a net worth greater than 93,000, you're in the top 10% globally. It Again, comes back to what, to, I guess, what do you value? What right? do you and, value? What's worth spending your time on? How much is enough? Yeah. Lots of things to think about yeah. here. Yeah. It, again, this is just food. You know, we, we can't answer what's, I have things that are important to me, Evan, you've got things that are, we're going to differ on some stuff and we'll be aligned on, on a lot. And you know, wherever you're listening from, you're going to have your own values and perception on that. It, I think he just does a good job of framing it, I guess, or, or tying together those pieces of money and life and some of the bigger picture things. Which I really respect about the book, right? Because it's very Absolutely. easy to write money books and have it all being about optimize, optimize, optimize. grow, grow, grow. Yeah. And so this, the, the last chapters here in particular would relate well to the interview I did with Andrew Hellam and his book called Balance, Money and Happiness and Greed and, and whatnot. If you want to go back and listen to that interview, if that kind of topic interests you, go back and have a listen to that one. It was pretty cool. That's another good book that we could maybe review here on the podcast. But any other key takeaways here before we wrap up, Jordan? I don't think so. I, I think this is a book that would be worth your time. You know, you might find yourself on one end of that saving investing continuum, but I think there's some good nuggets in there no matter where you are in your, your investing journey. Okay. So how many stars out of five? Oh, you're putting me on the spot here. I, I, I am. We didn't talk about that. I am going to go 4.2. 4.2. Yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Because I, I, I would, pre- let's just say I'll agree with your rating. This is Jordan's star rating. Okay. And I'll say I can't deviate from that too much because it was practical. It was approachable. It was short enough that we could kind of plow through it during your written two days here. You're yeah. a bit of a power reader, but yeah. yeah. And and a lot of things track with what we know to be good behavior. There's no crazy ideas in there that I'd say steer clear from this chapter. Everything else is good, but steer clear. No, it's, it's, it's a great book and it's really practical. So yeah, I would recommend it as well. Totally. If you liked this episode, 
I'd love to hear from you. There's contact info in the show notes where you can reach out and just say, hey, that was a cool podcast. I'd like to hear more of these book reviews. We do a lot of reading, so hopefully we can dig out some of the ones that we've read in the past and do again. There's more books all the time about about investing and about personal finance and how to behave as it relates to your money. So we've got a few ideas for other books like this, uh, reviews like this and going forward. But thanks so much for listening again to this podcast and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Canadian Money Roadmap Podcast. Any rates of return or investments discussed are historical or hypothetical and are intended to be used for educational purposes only. You should always consult with your financial, legal, and tax advisors before making changes to your financial plan. Evan Neufeld is a certified financial planner and registered investment fund advisor. Mutual funds and ETFs are provided by Sterling Mutuals, Inc.